Hi, this is George Lynch from Doc and Lynch Mob, Souls of Wii, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Focus Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another week of Focus on Metal. Yep, as 2020 rolls on, we have finally got ourselves into November, and that means yet another great month of metal for you right here on Focus on Metal. Kicking it off this week with a two-parter, part one this week, part two next week, in case you need the clarification, all about Lynch Mob's Wicked Sensation. Can you believe it? 30 years ago, last week, George and the boys put out the debut Lynch Mob album, Wicked Sensation. And just saying that makes me feel incredibly old because I can remember so much about when that album came out and going to see the tour and talking about that with everybody and playing it constantly and all of that. And just to think, holy crap, that was 30 years ago that all of that went down. So lots of good stuff about this incredible landmark album. This week, we'll be talking to bassist Anthony Esposito. Not the first time we've had Anthony on the show. And then next week, we'll go to the other side of the glass as we talk to producer Max Norman. So what do you say we begin to get that wicked sensation as we dive in with Richie's chat with bass player Anthony Esposito? Yo. Hey, Anthony. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. How are you dealing with all this uh, COVID stuff? You handling it uh, okay? Yeah, I mean, there's not much I can do. We can't tour. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing presently. I'm playing with uh, Red Dragon Cartel with Jakey Lee. And uh, we're just sitting around waiting until uh, we get the green light to go back to work, you know? Is Jake writing any new music? Or what, do you not know? Well, I mean, he, he kind of wants, wants to wait on... Um, we didn't really tour enough on Patina, and we think it's a really great record, and we want to work it a little bit more. So he thinks if we work on a new record, it's going to distract away from Patina and almost put it in the past, where he wants to go out and uh, pretty much do another run on that record and promote it better. And then he, then he said after that, he'll consider what our options are for even doing a new record, if he wants to or not. Mm. Oh, what about yourself? Are you doing any studio work to, to you know, buy the time? Occasionally, sometimes I, I get, like, mixes I, I have to do for clients, and sometimes um, uh, local bands will come in and record. But pretty much nobody's traveling to come to the studio, so it's all, like, you know, smaller stuff. Um, I'm mixing something right now with Gary Hummey, uh, the, the great guitar player, blues guy, and uh, I'm mixing one of his songs right now. Mm, Gary's up up my way. I'm um, I live in Lowell, yeah. Ma- Lowell Massachusetts, so Gary's yeah. the local guy up here. Yeah, he's a great player. Oh my god, what a talent! Yeah, he's uh, I think he's working on Lita Ford's new record as well. Oh really? Yeah, That's yeah, cool. he, yeah. I think he, he helped write the last one, and he's working on this one too. Mm-hmm. So the reason I have you on is um, Wicked Sensation is 30 years old next month. Um, <laughs> now you make me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> but 
what's your memory like in general of that time? Because I'm really I gotta pick your brain now a fair bit now about that record. Sure. Yeah, I'm the one with the with the memory, so so uh it's probably good that you hit me up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right before the Wicked Sensation, uh what band were you in? I was busing tables in New York City. And uh I had auditioned for a band on Atlantic and um they auditioned so many bass players and it was down between me and someone else and they chose someone else but the publicist at Atlantic Records thought I was really good and uh, they helped me get a bunch of auditions at the time so I flew out uh, to the west coast because I was born and raised in New York and uh, one of the auditions was uh, was Lynch Mob and um, I chose that band for multiple of reasons the other bands were just like hired guns uh you know a touring musician getting a salary lynch mob was originally set up as a, as a band four-way split on everything including merch and publishing and everything was split equally it was all for one and um and i also thought that the situation with george coming out of docking um he's really going to want to prove something like he's going to really want to show that he was the driving force on a special element in uh, in docking, and and having Mick and George both from docking, I knew that the Wicked record was going to be special because it was a, a period of, of of time where George he had already done so much and didn't really have anything to prove anymore, but now he did on this new record. Because Don was making a record too, and he enlisted all these all stars in his band, so George wanted to put together a band that would basically blow away Don. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Anthony, how old were you when you joined Lynch? Twenty-two. Twenty-two years 22. of age. So you were definitely. I, I joined. You... I joined a couple months before uh, we started recording. It was, I was probably in the band seven months before we actually went to LA and started recording. Okay. What did you play at the audition? <laughs> I, uh, you know, they say you can get anything, anywhere, anytime in, in, in New York City. Um, I actually got a rehearsal tape of them auditioning bass players. Um, so I knew uh, the songs before. Uh, one was Wicked Sensation, one was Sweet Sister Mercy. And um, so I flew out, and the weekend that I flew out, to uh, Arizona to audition. It was Nick's birthday party. And uh, the way that they had did it was, was uh, Nick would pick you up the ho- at the airport. You'd go back to his house. He would show you the songs, and then you'd go down to the rehearsal room and play them with the band. So we were at, uh, at the pool, at Nick's pool, because it was his birthday. It was a big party. So he kept going, uh, oh, it's my birthday party. Let's just hang out and drink. And then... Uh, I'll show you the songs a couple hours and then we'll go to the rehearsal room. So I was like, oh, cool, whatever, whatever. And then, uh, you know, he kept coming back every half hour. He's like, you know, let, let me come and show you the songs. I'm like, don't worry, I'm a quick learner. I'll pick it up fast. Because I already knew that I knew the songs already because I had this cassette with them, them rehearsing somebody else. So uh, he kept coming back and he's like, man, if I don't show you the songs, I'm going to leave my birthday party. You're going to go down. It's going to be a big waste of my time. You're not going to know the songs, and it's going to be a waste. And I'm like, no, don't worry. I'm really good. I'll just pick up on the fly and all that. And then uh, when, I, when, I, when I started playing, like Wicked and all this, 
I already knew what the parts were coming next. So they thought like I was this incredible force here. I was totally locked in with them on the same mindset and everything. Meanwhile, I already heard the songs. I knew the whole arrangement you know, and the key changes and everything. So it was great. Mm. Anthony, were there any other named bass players that auditioned before you that you can remember um, people mentioning to you? I don't know. I honestly don't remember. I, I don't, it doesn't really matter because I was the last one to audition. Like, after me, there was nobody else. And I remember the doors. I don't think George wanted me in the band. I think, I think Oni, well, I know Oni really went to bat for me. Oni liked my style. Being an East Coast guy, I wasn't like every other bass player in Los Angeles. Um, I, I didn't talk the same. I didn't wear the same kind of sh- clothing. I was way more East Coast, New York. I played a little bit um, more uh, aggressively, but not um, not aggressive like, you know, a, a, a death metal way. Aggressive um, in that New York street kind of vibe. There's definitely a sound that comes out of New York that's uh, a little bit heavy-handed, but still you're, you're exposed to so much in New York jazz and funk and soul that you still have a pocket, but you tend to, your right hand like drives a little bit more. And, um, Oni really does that about me. And, uh, and I remember he went to bat for me and, uh, and Mick wanted me, but I don't think George really wanted me. I think George wanted somebody else. And, uh, I got the gig and then we did Wicked. <clears throat> mm. Do you think George wanted maybe someone a little bit older? As a bass player, maybe someone he knew. I don't know. Okay, you never said you know you never talked to him I think about if it. They wanted, if they wanted that, they would, would have probably just gotten Jeff, right? <laughs> yeah. So when you did the audition, um, were you endor- You weren't endorsed by any company at the time, like you, you remember. No. So it was your own I bass and gear. So- uh, I played on Pilsen. I had Pilsen's Ampeg rigs from the Monsters of Rock tour staff. Okay. And I brought I brought, I brought my my P bass out. From New York, okay, okay. So actually, I remember everything. <laughs> okay, so did, did you did you only do the songs on the tape, or did you jam some covers? Did you try maybe see write some stuff to see if there was chemistry there? We never played covers. George is like the worst cover song player. Like like whenever we would have to do jams live, like Cinderella would make us come up at the end and play like Brown Sugar or whatever. George just solos over cover songs. So, yeah, I remember we did Wicked, we did Sweet Sister Mercy, and we might have jammed a little on some fresh ideas that George... I mean, George, you know, he always comes up, he has tons of licks rolling around in his brain. So I'm pretty sure we probably just grooved on something so they could see what I would just on the spot come up with, you know? Mm. Did you guys go out to dinner to get to know each other before they yeah. off they offered you the gig, you did. Yeah, there was a place. There was a place. Well, well, we stayed at this place in the Scottsdale Princess Hotel, um, and there was a bar there that was. Uh, there are actually two bars there um, that we often frequented and got got drunk and, and yeah, it was it was Lynch Mob that year, like eighty nine to ninety two, ninety one. It was such a family. We would, I mean, it was, it was, it was a great, amazing time. And it was all like, we'd all go out together. We'd all hang out. We'd ride our Harleys together. 
And, I mean, it was it was like we have to go over each other's houses, and it was a family. Like, and and that's I think that came across in the record. And then the producers started coming out to Arizona to write, you know, to hear the the progressive writing on the songs, and 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 get everything up to date, and tighten up the melodies and the lyrics, and 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 solo ideas and grooves and stuff, and. Really rehearsed every night, and it was like it was a family. It was a really amazing couple of years, uh, and um, I, I, I'll cherish those years forever. You know, mm. Anthony. When they said you, you're, they offered you the gig to join the band. Um, who who told you you were you were getting the gig? Did all they, three did of them. All, all, all three of them. Okay. Yeah. Tell me. I, tell went to, me. I, went, I went back to one of the bars and. Um, I had like seven auditions in seven days, and Lynch Mob was the first one. And then I flew to LA and I did a bunch more, and then I flew back. I had to fly back to Arizona for my connecting flight to go back to New York. And they pretty much pulled my luggage, pulled me off out of the airport. Like I was expecting a layover, and I just go on to New York. And I went back, and, and uh, at one of the hotels at the Scottsdale Princess, there was all this party and everything. and and then they sat me down at this big table, and uh, they said, there's good news and there's bad news. And um, I was like, all right, well, give me the good news first. And so they're like, okay, well, the good news is we called all the other auditions in L.A., and we got every single one. So I was like, wow, all right, that is good news. <laughs> awesome. I'm not going to bust cables anymore. And then um, and then I go, well, give me the bad news. And they're like, the bad news just has to play with us. We're offering you equal member status, and, and we really want you to be in the band and all that. And I was like, all right, you know, you know, I flew back to New York, packed all my stuff up to Phoenix. Mm. How unusual was it back then for new bands to have equal member status? Because you would have had Mick and, and George coming off talking. They would have been the named guys in the band. And here's here's you and Oni being offered equal member status in a band like that had to be in, very unusual back then. Well, I mean, I credit that to George. It seems like he tried to do that a couple more times after the original lineup was gone. He tried to create situations that were equal member, equal split, and because uh, he was basically dealing with mercenaries, he uh, he didn't uh, accomplish it. So. But I, for me, you got to remember, I was 22 years old. I was greener than center field on the opening day in Yankee Stadium. I did not know anything. And I was just a kid, and I only had played with, like, local bands where I, everything was always equal. So to me, it was norm. Like, I wasn't some session guy that was just rolling off a, a, a poor deal that was getting X amount a week and didn't expect it. Like, I was young and green, and I thought that was just normal. Yeah, you're gonna, if you want me in your band, and the band's an equal split. It's like a gang, you know? It's a family. It's a motorcycle gang. Every all for one, one for all. We're all going to make money, or nobody's going to make money. And, and and we were like that. We, and we, we did, everybody had each other's backs, and and it was a family. And uh, but all that changed, you know. Over time, I, I, I found out things that were not like on paper. It was a family and equal, but what how it was going down was not really equal. <laughs> mm. Yeah, Anthony, 
I'm going to ask you about each of the guys in the band and tell me your first impressions of them. Um, I'm going to start with George. Okay. My first impression was George was the thing that I loved most about him was his approach to guitar. I, and I'm talking, I don't know now, but back in 1989 when I met him, it was almost like a kid every day. It was like, it was like a kid when you're young and you lock yourself in your room and you just play and play and play and you're discovering and you're finding out new stuff. You like his approach to that, that instrument at that time was, was like very like, like a young kid hungry to learn. He would get all these different pedals and gear and try out every preset, like, and, and work on his tone every day. And, and it was like, he was hungry hungry to be better like hungry like it, it was awesome like it was uh, like when, when everybody starts out they get into a room with their friends and and, and, and it's like a, a discovery process of, of 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 playing your instrument and george had that he was so into playing and creating and getting better and and i i love that about him you know hmm. mick 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 was my closest friend at that time in the band. Um, we lived close together. We would ride Harleys, our Harleys to and from rehearsal every night. And Mick was always the center of the party, the center of, like, he was the fun guy in the room that everyone always wanted to be around. He's the guy that you wanted to sit, you wanted to get that seat next to Mick at the bar because you knew it was going to be fun and entertaining for the whole night and and he had this incredible ability of making me feel like a friend a brother and an equal at the same time like like it was immediate friendship and um nick um you know nick and, like you said nick and george came up docking they had five platinum albums you know and i like I was busting tables, you know, I was picking up people's dirty dishes, you know, and for him to make me feel like an equal and that my opinion and my input mattered and, and he just made me feel so comfortable and so relaxed in the situation. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was great. I love Nick. Hmm. And Oni. Oni, in the beginning, it was like, you know, we both knew we were, and he's a little bit older than me, but not much. And, um, we were both new to the table and we were kind of just trying like we were along for the ride but we were also trying to see where we fit in and see you know what, what we both weren't grown I mean George is 13 years older than me you know like uh, we were still trying to sort out oh yeah we were still trying to sort out about who the men we were going to grow into kind of deal you know and um, only only I always I always got the feeling that he was incredibly soulful, earthy, passionate, um, and and very much like Hendrix or very very soul and 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 he he speaks from the heart all the time. There's no hidden agendas. He was just like always uh, an artist, you know. He had that artist soul. And oh. over the years, over the years now, only I'm close with Oni out of any of the five guys. I include Robert in that, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm closest to Oni. Like, Oni and I will talk, like, you know, every other week or, or, or you know, three times a month or whatever. We, we still keep in contact, and we're still brothers. 
Um, when you got the Lynch Mob gig, did you have a lot of uh, bass guitar companies wanting to endorse you? Oh yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me oh, about yeah. tell me about deciding that. Well, George is the king of the endorsement. Like, so he kind of like guided me through the process, and uh, I, I was always an I'm, I'm I'm an American guy. I play American products. It's always Ampeg, Ampeg Fender. And uh, uh, D Markley was a string company that I picked at the time. Now I'm with PR, but I was always I was always pro. Like, but I, I literally called like every bass company that made amps. Like back then, it was Trace Elliott and SWR and Boogie, you know. And I had them send me all these amps because bass is a tricky instrument. You know, the bass rig that sounds good when you try it at Guitar Center will probably sound like shit in the context of a band, of a live situation. Ampeg won't sound as crisp and clear and beautiful as like, you know, like uh, whatever in the store. But once you get an Ampeg bass amp in rehearsal with the drums and the guitars going, that Ampeg just sounds right, you know? And, um, and that's why I picked Ampeg over all that. And then I, w- I was always a Fender guy. And uh, Fender had just, uh, Philip Kabicki was a, a bass designer that was at Fender. And he made like Hendrix's guitars and he made the telly for George Harrison. And, and uh, he had gone off on his own and designed this bass. And um, I remember seeing the bass being played by a few of the musicians that I appreciated. So I contacted Fender and I'm like, hey, what about these these Kabiki X Factor Fours. So they sent me a couple and they sounded really great. And uh, I ended up becoming like the rock poster child for that bass guitar Fender. Hmm. Now, after you joined the band, uh, how much of the album had already been written? You told me you did two songs for the audition. How many of the other tracks were already written None. at that stage? Just the two songs? None. Yeah. Okay. And it wasn't even the two songs were written. They were more, more or less just scaled out. Okay, so so tell me about writing the record. Then were were the songs jammed with the four E in the same room, or did you bring yeah. in ideas, or you jammed them all? No. Well, I mean, come on, it's called Lynch Mob for a reason. Everything starts and ends with George's guitar licks. Um, Oni Oni had this beautiful talent of while George was noodling for an hour, Oni would pull out that five second guitar lick and go. Like, there, that's it, that's it. And we kind of build around that. Like, Oni was real, a really good funnel mesh for George's ideas. You know, he would, he would boil them down and grab that one little magical thing. And like, let's work on that. Just just do that, like, for a verse. And then, you know, it was kind of like a free-for-all um, groove-wise. I, was, I never really played heavy metal before in my life. So my first impulse is not just to... Like, I, I, I'm from almost like a jazz, and I was playing jazz and punk in New York, if that's possible. But, um, but yeah, so my, my first inclination wasn't to lay down the obvious. Like, I thought in Doc and the bass lines were pretty boring and, and obvious. So I wanted to create more of a groove, and Nick and I got this, this thing going down with the team, though, with the sound that's, that, that carries through the album wicked. Um, we used to call it Moroccan Roll. And it was like kind of like a spinoff of a, of a Bo Diddley bounce, but um, it, was, it was more 
sleazy and slinky and sexy, and we'd sort of pull it back tempo, like like feel wise, and it would get a little dirty, and uh, it would bounce, and 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 that's pretty much the vibe of the undercurrent on Wicked. It, it stems off that that group that Nick and I uh, developed together, and then you know the, the songs were all like. We would jam it out, we'd work on parts, and then all of a sudden another part would pop in to go after that part, and then, and then Oni would come in with, you know, Mick wrote a lot of the melodies, too. I mean, don't, don't get, you know, like, like Mick, Mick is a Beatles freak, like he knows every Beatles song inside and out, and a lot of the big choruses and stuff were Mick, you know, Mick came up with these killer melodies and stuff, and I pitched in a little with the lyrics here and there, but. You know, a lot of a lot of Mick and, and and my input on this record sort of got depreciated over the years because Lynch and Oni were playing together, and when George wants to promote a new record or a new tour, he only really talks about the people that are in the room and are active in the lineup at the time. So it seems like Mick and I kind of got our inputs got kind of diminished and pushed in the back and forgotten about. Mm. Yeah. Anthony, was there in the beginning a difference between you and Oni to Mick and George that you wouldn't give your input unless those two guys said, "Well, what do you think?" Because they were the two guys no, that have. That no, are... no, I'm from New York. We don't. We don't ask. <laughs> we don't wait to be asked. I, I will voice my opinion all the time. I still do it, and whether 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 it sticks or not, it doesn't matter because it might lead to another option that wasn't even there before because you're offering another avenue to walk down. Um, I, I was not sitting on a stool in the corner of the room waiting for Georgia only to turn to me and go, what do you think? That, that fucking was definitely not the idea. Not the case. Mm. Can you think of any one example of any tracks where you had to stand up, you know, and you said something that maybe took him a little bit by surprise at your stance. No, I don't remember. Okay, okay. I mean, I mean, it's pretty obvious. If you put on the last bopping record, which was Peace to the East or whatever, uh, Back to the Attack or whatever, yeah. and you put on Wicked, and you put on Wicked, they don't sound anything alike. Yeah, true. What are, what are the two things that changed, me and only? So obviously we had some fucking input on the thing, to make it not sound like docking, you know? Yeah, and definitely. Then if you take, and then if you listen to all the Lynch Mob records after the fact, after Mick and I weren't involved, they suck. And, and they don't sound like Lynch Mob. And it's the reason why they don't is because Mick and I aren't there to add our chemistry to the equation. Mm, mm. So you, you, you work up the tracks and you, you eventually you decide to get Max Norman in as producer. Um, was he the only name on the list to get his producer? Can you remember? And Neil Kernan. And Neil. It started out Max Norman and Neil Kernan. Okay. Which that's another whole conversation. Like, after, I see you're doing this in chronological order, so I won't fast forward. But originally, Max and Neil came out to Arizona, and they would come to rehearsals. And we'd go, hey, here's one. We're and then we go, oh, this one, too. Oh, that. And then they'd hear the melodies that we got and the grooves and the licks and all that. And then they would offer their opinions as, as producers do. And then we, we'd rework it and, and, and try to make it better and push, push, push. We did a very long time on pre-production for that record. Like, like those songs were known 
going in what we were doing. And um, that's because Max and Neil came out 24-7, hung out with us, went to dinners with us, went to rehearsals with us. After rehearsals, we went out to bars and we partied together and we had fun and they became part of our family. And it was all, the goal was to make Wicked incredible. Mm. Why did you want two producers? Um, I don't know. Um, I know uh, George and Nick had worked with Neil Pryor with Bakken. Yeah. And then um, Max, it's so funny how we did Max, because going up again, once again, in New York, I used to go to Cat Club a lot on Wednesdays, and there would always be a few standards played off called Dirty Looks. So I really loved the first Dirty Looks record. And I remember we were playing, we were riding around in our car, um, I think, it was, I don't know whose car it was, but we'd always listen to music in the car, and I popped in the Dirty Lips cassette, and, and George's like, wow, this record sounds really good, if we did this. And I was like, I don't know, uh, some guy named Max Norman. So we called management, we got an interview with Max Norman. I had no idea he had done Ozzy and Megadeth, and like, I, I, I just liked the way the Dirty Lips record sounded. And I thought it was great, and, and George heard that, and that's how Max got in the mix. I don't even know if George, at the time, knew Max worked with Randy or whatever. And then and then we just loved it because that Dirty Looks record sounds incredible. And, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, Max was the perfect fit. Mm. Focus! So you said you, you, Max, and Neil, you all worked on the songs. One of the questions that comes to me about all of that is, did Max and Neil have the same ideas for changing the songs, or were, were, did both of them have different ideas? Like, Did that cause any friction there, that one guy would want the song to go one way and the other guy would want it to go another way? Honestly, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> because, like I said, I was 22 years old, I had just gotten the biggest gig of my life. I had just gotten away from picking up dirty dishes. And now I'm sitting in rehearsals in front of a wall of Antex, looking over to my left and seeing George Lynch and Nick Brown. So, like, I wasn't really concentrated on what the conversation was in the corner of the room. The only thing I was cared about is whether I thought the songs were cool or not. Mm -hmm. And when they weren't, when they weren't, I thought, you know, open my mouth and add my input, you know, because I didn't want it to be a hairspray, spandex, wrestling, sneaker-wearing metal band. Okay. So when you went in to record the album, Anthony, uh, did you try and record it live, you, George, and Mick, at the yeah, same time? Yeah, we did, we did. You did it all so live. Get back, get back to Max, okay? Yeah. Max, I love Max. I remember there's a couple of things I distinctively remember about Max with me dealing with me as a younger player. Like there was one rehearsal where Max were jamming on a song and Max goes, okay, uh, let's do the first verse, uh, time and a half. Then let's do three chorus. Then let's go back to the second verse. That's only half as long. And then let's hit the chorus and do the chorus. Double. And, and I didn't remember his changing. And I fucked it up. And I remember Max turning to me. I'll never forget this. He turns to me and goes, Anthony, I don't have time for you to learn your instrument. 
and I was like, "Fuck, I'm in the I'm 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 in the big leagues now. I'm playing with the big boys." And I never fucked up again. I never fucked up again after he did that. And it was kind of like, you know, the kid goofing around, uh, you know, and the mom going, Joe, you listen. And I was like, all right, I got it. And that was it. And that, that never happened again. I made sure of it. And then when we went in to do Wicked, there's a thing, the more you record as a musician, the more microscopic and in-depth your hearing gets. Especially when you're leaning on bass to drums, there's that kick drum and that snare and how it locks with the right hand of the bass guitar. I was new. I was green. I was fucking kid. I could not hear the difference between being a smidgen hair off the kick drum or right on it. And we're recording in Goodnight LA, in, in the valley, in LA. He had any bass player he wanted to, and about 10 seconds for the picked up the phone and had any session guy in there and replaced the kid, you know? Mm-hmm. And Max stood with me and taught me how to listen. I mean, it took me probably 10 or 12 days to do bass on Wicked. And when I was done with the process of Max teaching me and, 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 and shining the light on this, this dark gray corner that I had no idea even existed. When that period was over, he made me a better player and he taught me how to listen. When we went in to do the second Lynch Mob record, I did all days in a day and a half. Wow. <laughs> because, because of Max. He could have easily replaced me and he didn't. He stood there and worked with me. Anthony, was there any one track that was really difficult to nail down on Wicked? No, they were all, they were all the same. Okay. Uh, they were all, I mean, they were all, yeah, so we set up live, which, I mean, now I'm a producer and an engineer, and I own my recording, my own recording studio. And, oh, we want that live magic. We want that feel, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, we set up with a whole stage and, I mean, we recorded it in the same record where Metallica, Metallica came in right after we were done and did Blackout. So that big room that they have all divided up in like Nothing Else Matters video or whatever, that was where we were cutting. So we built this massive stage in there with a full monitor rig and PA and a stonerizer. I mean, it looked like we were playing a gig. And we went and it sounded god-awful. Like, it was like... The, and, uh, you know, even if you do cut it live, you always go back and replace shit and punch shit and, and whatever. And, 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 and so we ended up kind of doing it live because we were all playing when Nick was laying the drums down. And then we went back like everybody else does and replaced the bass and did guitars. And, but, it, you know, I guess we kind of had a, a attempt at exercising futility and go through the process of at least setting everything up and jamming it and going... This ain't the way to do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because I've spoken to a few producers and they all tell me that all the bands want to record live, but not all of them are able to do it because some of them aren't aren't good enough as players to do it. No, it's not even that. I mean, it's not, you know, like there's a difference between playing a live performance in front of people and capturing that moment and, you know, pre-YouTube, uh, pre, pre, you know, camera phone, that moment live was in that moment, at that venue, at that time, and it was gone as soon as it happened. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. In the studio, you're creating something that hopefully will be timeless and last in eternity. And yes, you are taking a picture, a snapshot of a band of four guys at that period in time, but it has to be, you're creating something that will last in eternity. So you have to approach it a little bit different, differently than, you know, that's why there's live records. Do a live record if you want to do a live, you know? Like, like studio records should be studio records. And I don't, I don't believe that performance of a song shouldn't be the same as the album. It should be that moment because no moments are the same. You know? We're not the same people that we were in 1990, you know? Yeah. Now, there's 12 songs on, on the album. Uh, do you remember, did you write more than that? I think we had ideas floating around, but pretty quickly we narrowed it down to the 12 and we really focused on the 12. Okay. And were you involved at all in the mixes of the album? Like, did did Max want your input on it at all when he was mixing it? Um, we were going, we would, we would go, I remember we had like, we had a couple of different studios going to the mixes at one time. I think Ruby's eyes got mixed at a different studio than Wicked. And, and, uh, I remember like, I remember being with George or, or Nick in LA and driving to different studios and listening to mixes. And, uh, at that point in my life, you know, I don't think I would tell Max Norman how to mix. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I think that's pretty fucking ballsy and stupid. When, when you're dealing with that kind of caliber uh, of a producer and an engineer, for some 22 year old kids go, no, no, the bass needs to be louder. You know, like that's stupidity. Hmm. You know, but I would, I, I walk in and I go, wow, that sounds great. Oh my god, you know, the president. Yeah, you know, it's great. Oh, the vocal sounds right up front. Yeah, you know, like I got it. You know, like I plus that record is, I mean, shit. It's like there were no problems mixing that record. That record was just. It was automatic. It was mm. great. Can you remember, Anthony, what the budget was on that album? The budget? Yeah, to make it. Any ideas? Well, I think I think we had a million dollars spent on it. Wow! I think we only spent like seven hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> 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 well, I know we'll never, we'll never well, that record. We'll owe. We'll owe money to Electra until, you know, our, our great, great, great grandchildren. <laughs> when I heard this record for the first time, I thought the sound of it was absolutely amazing. I thought the thing just flew out of the speakers at you. It was, it was heavy, but you could hear every instrument on it. And have you interviewed Max about it? I have. I've tried to get in touch with Max once or twice. I'll give, I'll give you his phone number. Yeah, because he did Rust in Peace and uh, and he did Death Angel around this time as well. And yeah, the, you know what he said. I, I talked to Max all the time. In fact, I got Ma- I got Max to mix Tina, the last record I did, I did with, with Red Dragon with Jake. Yeah, um, that's right. So so we got Max. I'm re- I'm really close with Max. I still keep in contact with him. I love him to death. And um. He says that more people ask him about Wicked than ask him about like Blizzard of Oz or Diary of a Madman. He's like, it's amazing. And he said he was up for Pantera, Cowboys from Hell, and he to produce them. And he passed up Pantera to do Wicked. And he, he goes, well, Kind of kicked myself in the ass for that one. <laughs> 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 now, 
No, and, uh, yeah, he said whenever he gets in- interviews or, or people like they hit him up on Facebook or whatever, he, he's he's amazingly shocked about uh, the, the percentage of questions are about Wicked and, 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 and how the whole thing is awesome. It's kind of like this record that like, it's kind of almost become like a heavy metal cult underground like record. Like it was never as big because of, I think it was because the year it was released was the year of Nevermind. But um, it's kind of heralded in an undercurrent and has all this credibility and respect. Uh, like, like it, it kind of live underground notoriety. Yeah. Mm. Um, I just want to ask you about the fo- the picture on the in the CD booklet. The photo shoot of you guys around the fireplace at the dining room table. Um, do you have any memories of that? Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so we uh, we had another album which was the, the facial black silhouette, black and whites. So the um, the art director at the time, and I'm drawing a fucking blank on his name. British guy did cult on a temple. Did in excess by kick. Uh, by uh, in excess kick kick album, he did uh, Iggy Pop, blah blah blah. Oh, I can't think of his fucking name. I'm trying He's to a look. Green Archer. I'm He's trying to look. Green at, Archer. I've I've got Green it in. Guy. I've got it in front of me. I'm trying to look down through it. So just keep talking anyway, Anthony. Okay. So he he uh he was involved in the layout. Everybody wanted that photo to be the cover, except for George. George wanted um. Oh, it just says front cover art, John Taylor. No, that's the art. That's the guy who painted it. Okay. Art, album art, art, art designer or art director. Okay. All right, you metal completist. I will not leave you hanging. The uh, guy they're talking about is Nick Egan. Definitely done a ton of work with albums and videos and all kinds of stuff. But I just saw him in a Clash documentary, so I guess he worked with the Clash too. Great, great British guy. Great fucking talent. But he did Sonic Temple to me is one of the greatest rock albums covers ever. But anyway, so it was his idea. Susie Randall was a big porn photographer. So he got this mansion out in Pasadena. And basically we did a, it's a tribute to the Rolling Stones Beggar's Banquet photo. Uh-huh. And um, and if you look closely on one of the wine bottles, we took the CD booklet from Beggar's Banquet and made it the wine label on one of the bottles. And it was just this like, Susie Randall, was, she's a big porn, porn photographer. And uh, she uh, she shot us at this mansion and she got the girls and the midget and all that stuff and just created this, this debauchery kind of set. And she tried to capture all of the personalities of each person in their kind of pose in that picture, you know? And uh, she was great to work with. Okay. I, I I'll never forget her British accent, screaming, screaming at Oni in, in this British accent. Give it to me, Oni! Give it, give it to me! <laughs> she was up on the line with the camera down, and I was like, it was, uh, yeah, it was from the national in Pasadena. And then we were going to do, it's been copied so many times, uh, the, the four faces with uh, the black, one side of the face is black, the other side is the black and white, and, and uh, and so the next day we went to her photo studio to try to accomplish that. And um, I remember because she was a, uh, she shot for Hustler a lot. There were hefty bags full of Polaroids of girls who wanted to be in Hustler. And it had all of the uh, names and addresses of these girls 
and then phone numbers on the back. So I remember we were collecting them like baseball cards for when we ran out on tour. The other picture there, the four of you guys on the Harleys. Uh, yeah, that's our, that. They're that your bikes? Our, yeah, well, no. We had a rent only. Only one had a bike. That, that's a rental. Uh, the other three, my bike, I think, I think George is sitting on my bike. I don't remember the photo, but my bike was the black one with the eight hangers. Nick was the blue Springer with the eight hangers. And George had the, the, the Heritage Softail, the two-tone one. Okay. The Oni never rode. Uh, Oni should not be on a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you remember your first live show with Lynch Mob? Yeah. Um, okay, so it was probably September 5th or 6th. And uh, I remember that because I think Nick's birthday is the 6th, and my son was born on the 7th. We did four shows at this little tiny dive bar in Phoenix that everybody loves called the Mason Jar. And we wanted two nights uh, where nobody showed up so that we could practice setting up the gear and sounding good on stage outside of the rehearsal room. So we booked the shows under the name Gay Black Nazi Bikers for Christ. <laughs> so... We had four nights in a row that we were playing. The first two of those gave up not to thank us for Christ. So the local KUTV, the local rock station, was going through the, the, the newspaper ads at the time. Oh, yeah, let's see who's playing in the valley tonight. Oh, my God, there's this band, Gay Black Nuts, Bikers for Christ, at the Mason Jar. I'm just going to go to see what a band that would call themselves that sounds like. And it turned out, because the name was so outlandish, we actually ended up attracting a, a fair amount of people. So this show that we wanted to basically play to nobody was pretty packed. So we did we did two shows like that, and then the word got out that oh, the gay black nuts bike is actually Lynch Bob. And then the third and fourth nights were billed as Lynch Bob. And then um, on the, the gig of the seventh, my son was born. So I was literally at the after soundtrack went to the hospital. Um, my my ex wife gave birth, I cut the cord, went back, did the gig, and then a bunch of us went back to the hospital after the gig and just brought the party to, nice. to my ex-wife's room, and, and that's how we celebrated it. But I think Nick's birthday was like the day before or the day after, so it was just, it was a crazy four days. <laughs> did you play any docking songs when you went out first yeah, to Lynch Mob? Okay. Because, you know, because out of the gate, we were a headliner, like not a headliner in arenas, but whenever we did large clubs, we were the headliners, so we had two hours of, 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 of material. Well, we only had the wicked album, so we had a few. We had a few, Mr. Scary and Kiss Death, and, you know, it's not like we were throwing songs that felt like lynch mobs, you know, like we did Kiss and Nail, we did Kiss of Death, we did Mr. Scary. Um, you know, songs that kind of were a little bit more... Um, closer to the lynch mob sound that Dawkins had done, you know? Mm. Now, was one of the first tours on that, the one you did in Europe with Queensryche? Yeah, it was awesome. Loved yeah. it. Yeah. Did you get on well with the Queensryche guys? Oh, I love those guys. You know, I got along, I, I mean, you know, bass player, bass player, I got along great with Eddie. Um, you know, uh, they're all great guys. Um, they, they tend to be a little, bit more cerebral than we are. Um, we partied. They didn't, you know. <laughs> I had um. I remember I had Red Beach on the show a few years ago, 
And I remember asking him, because he was in Dokken in the late 90s on, on a race to uh, slate. And I, right. said, I said, how wild is Mick Brown? And he said, Mick Brown is wild. Breb said, I thought I could drink. And then I went out drinking with Mick. I remember one time we did this show in Florida. It was called Livestock. And it was on a field in the middle of Zephyr Hills, Florida, where they would basically push the cows off the field construct this massive stage. It was probably 85,000 people. And we were on 7th right before the headliner. And the headliner was last kid. And we were at the hotel, the same hotel as Skinner. And Skinner had this thing. It was like, they had like, it was a combination thing. I forgot what they called it. But it was like a shot of whiskey, a line of coke, uh, drag off uh, off a joint, um, a beer. Uh, it was all this time. You had a spirit and sit at this this chair, and it was almost like a uh, in a semicircle in front of you. And there was an order that you had to do them or whatever. And I remember like Nick just not, not wanting to get up from the chair. <laughs> he just kept doing it. Like, we want to do that. We want to try. You know, like and yeah, you know, Nick was always the life of the party. He was always. Like, you couldn't beat him in pool. You couldn't beat, like, darts. Anything involving a, a bar, alcohol, uh, any kind of social activity. We would play softball on Sunday mornings, and we'd call all the bands in Arizona and just show up on a field. And, play, and he was great at that. He's very, like, he's the life of the party. And the guy, he's the, the, the MC of the whole thing, you know? He's great. Party mm. was always in his room. Whenever we were in hotels, it was always go to Nick's room, and, and, and there would be the the bar would be set up, and there would be a, a room full of people, and you know it was always like that. He was the best. Mm. Anthony, how good a drummer is Mick? Because I think awesome. I, I I think a lot He's of people. The most underrated drummer. I, I I don't understand why he's not in the conversation with like all these other great drummers. Um, you gotta realize one thing: when you play with a guitar hero. Um, you really, and, and I mean, I've found a lot in my career where I've played with guitar heroes, and the way that I played with Jake is different than the way I played with George or the way I played with Ace or any of the other ones. It's like, he's played with George for so much of his career. When you play with George, somebody like that, that has his playing style, it kind of gives you many opportunities to shine as a drummer or a bass player. You're basically there, and your job is to hold it down and groove as, as tight and, and as powerful as you can so that George can explode on top of it. So he never really, there were very few moments that he had, you know, eight bars to, to let go. And, and, and I, I think that's why he's not heralded higher. But that guy is incredible. His topic, his place, his meter. We went, after, after the first tour in Lynchbob, right, when we were, we were touring on Wicked, we had backing tracks, you know, and this is the, this is the pre-tools era, so we had to play to a DAT machine, and on the left side of the DAT machine was a click track, and it would say, Wicked Temptation, one, two, and then boop, 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 and then the right side would have whatever was on the recordings that we couldn't do right, like keyboards, um, or like a super, super high back. I look like Max had Dave King from uh, from Fastway come in and sing all these 
scream that high, harmony vocal parts that like, I mean, if I could sing that high, I'd be a lead singer, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it's like, there's no way that Nick and I could ever hit those live. So we, we, we flew those, we flew those on the DAT and we would sing along, but we, our mics were on and we were singing our parts, but there were vocal parts that we couldn't do. Um, so we would play to a click every, every song. And then when we got off and we recorded the second record with Keith Olsen, Keith had this drummer torture device called a Russian dragon. And one input would be the snare drum and the other input would be the click track. And it would be an LED. And if you were rushing, the LED would go to the right. And if you were dragging, the LED would go to the left, rushing and dragging. And um, he had it hooked up to Nick, and the light didn't move at all. Wow. And he goes, oh, my God, this must be broken. This never happened. So he had somebody else go up on the kit, and the light was all over the place. <laughs> and just, Nick is so fucking good, and he doesn't get any, like, no, no, like, credibility or kudos or anything, you know? Mm. Now... I can't let you let you go without asking you about the reimagined version that you know George just released a couple of months ago. Was there any conversation at all between George and you to maybe come back and do no, that? No, no, I, He never called me about the remastered reissue of Wicked. He never called me about the reimagined version of Wicked. He didn't call me about anything. It kind of sucks because supposedly it was a people's share. So if I own 25% of the publishing, I should be consulted. And, and it's like, it's just bullshit. Hmm. Um, as, far as, as far as the reimagined record goes, first of all, those songs have nothing to do with the Wicked songs, except for the lyrics. And they're using the lyrics off the first. And they changed some of them, too. So, uh, so in some cases, not even that. But I think if you judge it as a record, not as a reimagined version of a great record just judge it as a record forget the words and just listen to it musically and melody i think it's a mediocre record mm. and as as it, as it stands on its own i think it's a mediocre record and then if you try to compare it to wicked i think that's kind of a joke mm. now the other thing is that george has retired the name lynch mob do you ever recall George saying that he was uncomfortable with the name of the band in all the time you were with him? As I said, the first two gigs we ever did as Lynch Mob were called Gay Black Nazi Bikers for Christ. If that wasn't an issue, why would Lynch Mob be? Yeah. And then secondly, I remember he was like, oh, Bernie Reed's on ESP guitars, and he's making the... And this was like when Wicked was coming out. Oh, Bernie Reed's making this big stink. He doesn't want to play ESPs if I call the band Lynch Mob. And, 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 then, and then we ended up using the name Lynch Mob anyway, and Bernie Reed left ESP guitars. And then, and then it was like, you've got to realize, here's the deal. I don't think the, there's money in the name, okay? Like, if Jake went out and called Red Dragon Cartel Badlands, even though she's the only guy in the band from Badlands, um, the guarantees per show would probably be three or four times higher. So the name on the marquee, the marquee value of the name of a band is worth money. Even though it's only one original member or two, it's still worth money. Like you put Foreigner up on the marquee, none of the Foreigner guys are in it anymore. And they still get paid a lot of money because Foreigner's up on the marquee. Mm -hmm. So 
for him to change, and, and George is money-driven, for him to change the name of the band, it's got to be something else because he's going to lose money not being able to throw Lynch Mob up on the marquee. So he did an interview a, couple, uh, a year ago. I don't know. He did Sturgis for six days or whatever, and he really bagged on the crowd and as Trumpers and... And and he, he I read it on Blatter about it. it was like he really degraded his fan base basically, and uh, I think he changed the name more for fear of being considered a hypocrite for saying what he said in that interview about the Sturgis crowd and the Trumpers, and if he didn't change the name, he would look like a hypocrite. So he sort of painted himself into a corner. Hmm. Hmm. Um. I know you have no contact really with George, and you do have contact with Oni. But do you have any contact at all with Mick? Uh, I think I spoke to Mick like last year. I mean, it's not that I don't talk to him. It's just you know, uh, okay. I guess occasionally I'll just be like, I think when I played Phoenix, you know, I think I called him when I played Phoenix. Okay. I played Phoenix with Jake last year. I called him. I'm like, hey, I'm in your town. You coming? And I, he was out. He was out. He was still playing at that point. I think he was out with the chair. So, mm. final question: um, Do you have a favorite song from Wicked Sensation? <laughs> uh, you know, um, probably four million years. Okay, right near the oh, right near the end. Yeah. Yeah, I love the middle breakdown. I love when we go into that mid tempo breakdown. George solos it's open. I think honestly. Wicked Sensation is the best record George ever did. I think the solos on Wicked Sensation are fucking incredible. And I think, to me, it was always George was like like Mike Tyson or like, like a great fighter. Like the way that he ends the solos on Wicked, it's almost like that knockout punch. Like he caps the solo off on the, on the, all those solos on that record, like a flurry, and he just pops you in the jaw and knocks you out, you know? And, uh, and I honestly think, like, you know, some people say Underlock. Keys is best record that he ever played on, or, or Tooth and Nail, or whatever. I honestly think that his work on, on, on like, his guitar work is incredible. The, the, the tone, him and Max, I guess, worked really well together, or uh, I wasn't in the room when those guys were working, so, um, but, yeah, I just think that, that it's the best record to watch everything. Oh. Well, Anthony, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure talking oh, to you thank again. Thank you. Thanks for caring. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to text you Max's number. Yeah, I actually, I, I actually interviewed you to promote the Patina record. Oh, I knew you were the voice sounders. <laughs> I knew, and I was like, don't be stupid just because he has an Irish accent to say, wow, you sound familiar. <laughs> but you did sound familiar. Okay. But, um, yeah, I I love Wicked Wicked, uh, and and Patina too. I love Patina's a grower, you know. It's brilliant. The more you listen to it, the better Patina gets. It is. It's a super record. One of the things I remember asking you about that record was Max's mix on it, because I even said it to you in the interview that Max's mix on Patina is different to Wicked, but the two of them sound awesome. Um. Okay. So Patina, I remember more about the mix process, and it was more like. The first song that he mixed, I think, was Havana, and we probably went through six or seven alterations of that mix. But you also got to remember this day and age, 
you don't have to go to the studio to hear a mix. Like, like she could just, you know, fucking, uh, you know, we transfer it to mm-hmm. you listen to it. Yeah. So she would send us, he would send Jake and I the mix. And then we would go, I don't know about the, the, the panning on the guitars in the verse. Or I don't know about the, I think the, the effect is too much on the vocal and the chorus. Or, and then he would tweak it, tweak it, tweak it. So the first song took the most amounts of tweaks. And then once he sort of understood the page that Jake and I wanted to live on, then he was good to go. And then the rest of the songs came, came out pretty rapidly. But it was kind of like, you know, I, and my whole thing was like, oh, Crush too loud. We're not a, we're not a fucking, you know, Santana. Jakey, we only have the guitars loud. <laughs> you know, like, like the, uh, the hi-hats may too loud, the shakers too loud. The, the, you know, like, uh, so that was always my comment to where I was like, I, I almost would just cut and paste it in, you know. But, um, but no, that, after he got the first one, and then, because there's nine million ways to mix a song, and, and he, uh, once he figured out where we wanted to live artistically, sonically, he nailed them all, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got to get back here, Anthony. So yeah, good thing. Yeah, thanks for talking to you. Thanks for your time. I'll talk to you again. Yes, you will. All right, take care. Bye. And that, my friends, is a wrap for part one of our two-part Wicked Sensation special. Big thanks to Anthony for taking a crap load of time to talk to Richie all about uh, his history and his history with Lynch Mob. And like I said at the beginning of the show, next week we'll have an equally long conversation with producer Max Norman, who's got a little bit of a different take. Actually, in some cases, a lot of a different take than Anthony, which is always great when you get two differing opinions about the same project and the same time in history and all of that. So it's really cool to hear from Anthony as being kind of the you know newly minted rock star in this band, as opposed to Max Norman, who's kind of more the done-it-all, seen-it-all producer at this point, doing this as well. And you get the, you know, one side of the glass and the other side. So good good compare, contrast kind of journalism happening for you here on Focus on Metal. So I hope you enjoyed part one of this and look forward to getting the uh, part two out to you next week. And between this week and next week, if you are looking for something to do, I urge you to uh, go and check out Bob Nelbandian's Inside Metal, Godfathers of Bay Area Metal. Great documentary, good stuff in there. Just all kinds of old photos. They go to the old places where the clubs were or the clubs still are, but there's something else. Just really good stuff. And if you haven't already done it, you can head back a few episodes and actually hear my talk with Bob all about that. But definitely well worth your metal dollars to go out and buy yourself a copy of that. And if not, if you're the streaming type of person and not the uh, physical product maniac that I am, then you can stream that from all of your favorite streaming services as well. And again, well worth a good evening to sit back, celebrate some Bay Area metal, whet your appetite for part two of that. And really, when you finish watching part one, you're going to be thinking the same thing that I'm thinking, which is, holy crap, what can Bob possibly be putting into part two when part one has already been so damn comprehensive? But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself, Richie, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. Be safe out there. And as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else.